Welcome to The Young Woman. This is a podcast for ambitious young women to be inspired, empowered, and equipped with the personal development tools and game-changing career advice needed to unlock inner confidence and achieve those big dreams. Today, I am joined by Anna Stretton, a wonderful woman who has used her ambition and hard work ethic to pave an incredible path for herself, while also creating a meaningful and lasting legacy through her work. Anna is a talented fashion designer, business leader, successful entrepreneur, and philanthropist. There is so much we can learn from Anna. In this podcast, she shares insights into her business success, as well as her advice for backing ourselves, being confident to take big risks, how to look for the opportunities that come out of adversity, and overcoming unconscious biases within our society. It is an honor to be joined by Anna Stretton for this episode, and I would like to welcome her to the Young Woman Podcast. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's all good. Are we doing, is this pictorial or just voice? It's just voice, yes. Oh, man, I didn't have to get made up. You did it. Oh, it's a bit <laughs> I'm all good with this. This is way better. Yeah, we'll get into it. Thank you so much again for joining me today. So you are the founder and CEO of the Stretton Fashion Group, and I understand that you founded your fashion label in 1991. So could you take us back to the beginning and share what it was like for you as a young woman stepping out to start your own business? Oh, wow. I mean, that's 28 years ago because on the 14th of April, which is like three days ago, we were 28 years of age. Wow. And I guess it was just such a different platform that I operated from then. So I, any conversation that I'm having with you now probably needs to be taken in light of that. I get asked a lot by budding designers or people that want to enter the fashion industry around, you know, whether they should, um, what it could potentially look like for them. And I'm perhaps not as, um, you know, supportive of, of a space that's particularly difficult to be in now. Uh, certainly when I got involved, um, it was a whole lot of happy accidents and opportunities that I chose to talk, uh, t- chose to take. And it, um, I guess, you know, I'm trying to bring the elevator version to this because it's such a big story. But I, uh, I got into a conversation with my dad, who is an accountant and a lawyer, around how ineffective my life journey was, uh, you know, appearing to be. So I was a fine arts student and I was studying in Dunedin. I was back in the Hawke's Bay for my holidays. Uh, we got into some robust debate around the left and the right brain. And I wanted to show him that you, if you, and I'm sure it's the right, I had the right, which is the very creative side of the brain. The left is kind of the more analytical, functional. And I wanted to show him that creative is intrinsic, uh, financial is um, something you can learn. So I said, look, pick a degree and I'll do it for you and I'll show you how easy it is to do what you do. It's not so easy to do what I do, which is, you know, the art space. And he suggested I picked it because I was going to do it. And so I took the deer up and I studied accountancy. So I don't even know why I chose accountancy because I'm certainly not bent that way. 
but it was wow yeah numbers aren't always the most fun to work with either yeah, are they? but it was seven years of part-time study I did it through the polytech it was a full degree it was the chartered accountants society's degree um, and so I chose something that was more kind of practical rather than the university route which was a little more you know you can add some marketing you can do this you can do that I just wanted to do straight up accounting I actually didn't want to do that but I was trying to prove something and when I got into it I actually saw the value of it I even had to join an accountancy firm at one stage to make the whole thing make sense. So it was a bit a bit of a crazy journey at that age. And I ended up at 30 pregnant and I just sat my final exam. So I guess, you know, the pregnancy was not going to stop me from studying, but I was kind of over it too. So fingers crossed that I passed, which I did. And I suddenly had a full um, accountancy degree and was working in an accountancy firm at the time. But I took eight months off to have a baby. And that baby is now 30 years of age, Sam, and she's running my fashion company. But I took eight months off and I um, was asked by the um, accountancy firm to come back to work after eight months. And I said to them, look, I hate accounting. I hate it. And I know that it's not where I want to be or what I want to do. And they replied with, we thought you were going to say that. Um, and so we've got a nice little job with a clothing company in Morrinsville, which is where I'd ended up with my farmer husband. Um, it's counting, but it is in a creative industry and you may enjoy it. So I ended up in there. Um, I worked in a, a sort of a small part-time accountancy role, realized that I really wasn't an accountant's backside. I just don't think like that. I don't love it enough to actually be able to extract out of it what needs to be extracted to, to keep companies on track. Um, and then... They offered me the full-time accountancy role, which was insanity. Um, and I said to them, look, hey, I now know one thing. I am not an accountant. But what I do love is actually the creative side of this business. And they said, well, we were hoping that you might have said that and we were going to offer you a design role. Um, the, in that company, it wasn't really design. I would travel the world. And I would look for styles that were actually going to work with the New Zealand market. So I'd come back and I'd sell the Kmart, Farmers, um, Easy Buy, Glassons. So all you had to have was a great eye to be able to pick trends. Um, I love what that job was. And I spent a lot of time, um, you know, out of the country doing the work. And I was good at it, really good at it. And I built a very strong business base for this company. So much so that they hired me an assistant who came down from Auckland and said to me, she was working alongside me and she could see some of the battles that I was having, restyles that I'd secured that they believed weren't their footprint of make. So they didn't want to go ahead and make those styles, but they wanted to be more specifically in the denim space. And that's in the days when denim was made on shore and we all had these massive wash plants and production plants. And, I mean, the company I worked with had around 50 people working on machines um, as one part of the operation. But um, she could see some of the struggles I was having. And she said, you know, why don't you go and do this yourself? And I said, seriously? I said, you know, we're making runs of five to 10,000 plus. And I said, you know, what do you do if Easy Buy or Glassons rejects your run? Um, you know, it's very hard to move that on to, to another organisation or another, another business um, because they mm -hmm. kind of sit at the, excuse me, I'm just going to shut my dogs out. They sit at the bottom of the, um, you know, they're, they're sort of at the bottom of the apparel chain. And I say that with Araha, you know, but they're certainly in the, the price market um, and very, you know, they're very clear directive around what they do and the market that they meet. And she said, look, I don't know. She said, but there's people in Auckland that are making a lot of money out of fashion and, you know, you're so much better than them. Why don't you give it a go? So I did. 
Um, I went out on my own. Um, my husband had a farm. We had a dairy farm in the Waikato. And I sit up from my children's bedroom um, in that space. And I kind of just got into the business of fashion. I was about making money, which made me very different to a lot of the other designers. I set up um, and approached a lot of the people that I'd been working with with my old company, but I was very careful not to offer them product that crossed across what they did, i.e. the denim. So I picked up some of these orders that the old company had said, look, we don't want to make these. It's not our core business. And so I had a real focus on knits. So t-shirting, big tops, you know, anything that I could do that was kind of in that knit space, not knit wear, but knits. So thank you, t-shirts and things like that. I mean, man, it worked. It really worked in the first year from my daughter's bedroom. Um, I, we moved her in with us. Um, I turned over a million dollars. It was 50% profitable. I didn't even know wow. what to do with the money. Like, But it was a very different environment. I mean, and that we were trading, um, you know, there wasn't the Chinese make or the, you know, the international make that comes in through Bangladesh and Cambodia and Vietnam and, and it's largely China. I didn't have the Australians that I had to compete with. And it was a very much a, I guess, a circular type of economy, like it's going to be now under COVID, which is the interesting thing. And we can talk a little bit about what I've done in that space. But um, the, you know, I just went for it, really. Um, I can remember the day I got an order of 20,000 shift dresses from farmers. Um, I mean, I was just really small when I got that order. And I knew that I had um, $4 a dress. Um, and they, uh, that was, you know, obviously my accounting skills came into play and I knew I was going to make $4 a dress. That was $80,000. Um, so I was pretty excited to execute it. But I did it with such a scant team. Um, I did it from a dirt floor garage because I had to hang all these damn garments to be picked up by the courier companies that were coming in at all hours of the morning to pick them up. And uh, it was insanity in many respects. The, the shift dresses, which are just a simple like a singlet dress, took over the lounge. They took over my life. But it showed me that at whatever level um, I needed to operate, I could actually achieve it. And I guess I was all about the business of fashion. I wanted to make money out of fashion. And I, the, a lot of what I see today is young designers just wanting to see their frocks on the right sort of people or, you know, the fabulous people. And that often doesn't lead to a healthy bottom line, unfortunately. And so I was never in that space. Mm, that that's really interesting to hear thank you so much for for sharing all of that and I love um it was part of that story that you you had to have the confidence to actually decide that you know this is what I'm passionate about this is what I want to pursue yeah. um but then also that the time that you had spent training and getting your accountancy that has actually really helped grow your business as well because like you said you went into it with a very savvy business mind um, so did you ha ever have any moments along this journey, especially initially when starting it up, when you questioned yourself um, or your dream of getting into fashion and starting your own label? And if so, what are some of the strategies that you use to overcome these internal fears? I never had them. Um, I never had them. You know, I've always backed myself, always believed in myself. In the early years, I just went from strength to strength to strength. And I guess I took a huge hit when Kmart New Zealand, who were giving me $5 million worth of business, um, they decided to take their buying office back to Australia. Um, I can remember because in those days I used to go up in my little L300 van and I'd pick up the press and I'd go in and call in on Kmart on the way home because it was such a big um, supplier for them. 
and you know and they told me that afternoon that it was kind of all over and it was going to be immediate it was in a, within a seven day thing they were just taking it offshore um and suggested that i might want to deal with australia and might want to deal with um and start to think about chinese make but you know i was miles off that and i knew that i wouldn't stand a chance with the australians um and that i didn't have the relationships that i'd so sort of zealously built in the new zealand market so i had to reinvent I had to reinvent really, really, really quickly. I guess I never, ever, and this is also in this COVID time, I never see absolute fail or absolute sort of catastrophic moment as anything but opportunity. I always find the courage in it. I, I always know that something comes along into the space um, and there's always opportunity that sits in it. Um, and I guess for me, working with so many people that are really fearful of this COVID time, um, I see, especially in business, um, all I can see is opportunity. And I've you know, created some great opportunities. But back at the Kmart space, you know, I can remember driving back to Morrinsville because it's worth based um, today and then and thinking, holy cow, what am I going to do now? Um, you know, what does this all look like? And then I thought, you know what? Um, the stupidity was not having the diversification from day one. You were so reliant on people like Kmart and Easy Buy and those big guys. So if they changed their mind, it had such huge impact on your business. So, you know, and all the way along, I've had known that eggs in one basket is never a healthy thing. So I started to reinvent and I put together a label um, that in the early days I called Sam and Libby just for one of a, you know, my daughter was called Sam and I had a little Volkswagen car I called Libby. Um, which was the sort of a marketing vehicle for the company. And we put this little label together and I decided to go into retail. I decided that um, some of the interactions I'd have with people that were working in small boutique stores um, were relatively average, not all of them, but I'd certainly had some pretty average um, relationships around trying to sell them product and convince them to get into a space that I believed I knew really well. And so the Sam and Libby stores were born and they, they were created sort of in 1993, a couple of years into it. Um, and I started to drive my own outcomes. You know, I've always been a big advocate. If it has to be, it's up to me. You know, it's going to be me that drives success. It's not going to be, you know, my partner or a conversation I have with a mentor or an advisor. And on that, I've never had a mentor or an advisor. It's very much me and my world, which is not a great thing. You know, now that I have the ability to reach out to different people with different skill bases, I certainly take that. But in those early days, it was just me, me and my own. But I guess I never, ever doubt myself. And I don't doubt myself now. And for the last three years in fashion, you know, we've traveled this um, journey of 28 years where I've reinvented and reinvented and reinvented to actually meet market. But the last three years have been really, really tough for us, really tough, because there's so many players in the market, you know, and it's about how you set yourself apart. You know, what is your point of difference? You know, how do you react on the and pivot yourself into the digital space and do really well? And how do you really know what it is that your customer's after and how do you meet that need? And for me, the... Um, you know, the last few years have been incredibly hard and I've not managed to kind of work out what exactly that is because I compete hard out globally, whether I like it or not. Um, you know, and any woman at any time can buy at any price, any label um, and feel comfortable on that digital platform. So we've had to really rethink. So I guess COVID has entered our lives and it's opened up this massive opportunity for me. And I'm suddenly back at ground zero, where I was when I started my business in 1992. Fortunately, I did not give up my infrastructure. So I still had nine or 10 um, industrial sewing machines and overlockers and buttonholers, and they were sitting in a shed. 
um, we still had a huge cutting space and I had a building that we were all swimming in really because our infrastructure is up in China and I was looking at potentially selling it. But suddenly COVID struck, um, we can't get goods out of China. Um, I had a woman come to me that I've been working with in my charitable space and she said, hey Anna, can you make us 600, um, 6,000 fabric masks for a vulnerable community that we serve? And I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And she said, well, here's the pattern. And I, said, I had a look at the pattern and I said, your pattern's not very good. Um, we can do better than that. We can actually make one that works better. And suddenly we found ourselves in the business of mask making and we have made over wow. 20,000 damn masks. It's insanity. The orders that came in last night, I'm about to head there um, to work to pack masks again all day, um, are beyond anything I've ever seen. And I guess what's happened is I've been able to pivot really quickly because I had the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There was an opportunity that presented and then I had someone reach out to me that I had a relationship with um, to support a charity. And then I looked at how I could support that charity because I had 28 years with the fabric and elastics and trims and all sorts of things I could donate. But I also had infrastructure. And I had people, and so I had myself classified as an essential service. And we were cooking with gas. And that thing's just gone from strength to strength. So when we come out of this, I don't know if we'll be a fashion label anymore. Um, I think we'll be meeting a new normal um, in a space where infrastructure in this country for fashion and the manufacturing base is gone. There's nothing left. It's all gone off, offshore. But it needs to be onshore again. So I'm kind of back where I was with Kmart New Zealand before they said, hey, don't come Monday. Um, we've got other opportunities because I've been able to hit the ground running and I've been able to put in a labor force and I've had all the, not only the infrastructure, but all the raw material to meet the need as well. So it's a pretty exciting time. And I feel like I'm 30 yeah. years of age um, and back in that very um, first startup space. But you know, the cool thing is I'm working with my mum and I'm working with my daughter, which um, makes it incredibly special as well. But we have once again, identified an opportunity um, and moved on it really quickly. And that's what good business does. That's what good business does. Yeah. Mm, I love that. That That's that's so interesting. And it's, it's great to hear that. I guess you could almost call it a positive perspective looking at yeah. the challenges that COVID-19 is facing because there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. But I think that's so true that um, we've got to really tap into our innovative ideas and get back to being that entrepreneurial spirit to work out how we actually are going to navigate the next, you know, few years um, and how this is all going to look after this. Yeah, I think, you know, you've got to find the courage within your fear it's really important that it's not fear, but it's courage that is driving you forward. And if you are, I guess, bent towards entrepreneurial business, you will find the ideas. Um, the key to it is looking for the opportunity. Most people get too fearful or too nervous or too closed down to actually take up opportunities or they just think they're too time poor or too exhausted by it all or it's just too much. I've never felt like that. Um, I guess I always look for the opportunity. Um, I feel like a five-year-old kid opening a chocolate Easter egg. You know, it's when I find them and I, now I've got 30 years of business acumen that I can flesh them out with. And the other thing that I've been doing so much work of, I've been working with um, Andy Hamilton at Ice House and mentoring a lot of business that is really fearful of what's happened in this environment. And, you know, I'm really enjoying the mentoring space again. I gave it up 
years ago, purely because I found that there wasn't a lot of gratitude around the mentoring space. You know, I'd spend a lot of time and investment um, and I'd invest, you know, f uh, my time in um, talking with someone and you kind of never hear from them again. You'd never even get that kind of thank you follow up text. So I sort of thought, actually, if people aren't going to be more grateful of the time that I'm prepared to give, I'm going to stop. Um, and that was also the um, conversation that was happening with a lot of my female colleagues that were highly successful in business. They were tired of the lack of gratitude. So that's maybe a nice message to get to your community and the community you're working with. I guess there's a lot of people like me that are out there wanting to help and support, but what we become frustrated from is just the absolute taking environment. You know, it has to be something mm -hmm. that you know we feel valued um, and we feel there's a level of gratitude in that for us to continue to be given. I guess like anything, anything, you know, after a while, if someone doesn't, and you don't feel it's kind of um, of value, you stop doing it. Yeah, that that's so that's so interesting, and that's um, such a good point to make. So I think so many young women do want that um, support and that mentoring and the encouraging, but it's so true that it's a it's oh, a two way relationship, yeah. isn't it? That, yeah, um, you don't need to send me flowers yeah. and chocolates, but you know, there's nothing wrong with a follow up text because <laughs> I've even spoken to you on the phone, um, and, you know, just with a maybe a, an emoji with some flowers and a star, you know, like um, you know, whenever I reach out to get someone to help me, the first and next job I do is a text and an email of thanks just saying how much I appreciate it. And, um, you know, so I think that's, and, and it was interesting being in a space with my, um, you know, people like Teresa Gatting, you know, very successful woman that I mix with on a daily basis. And they were all of the same opinion. They were over it, over it because of just the lack of gratitude. So, and I guess a COVID environment actually brings out the best in all of us. Um, in a lot of ways because we see the absolute adversity that sits around us and we want to help we want to make a contribution and so a lot of very capable people are back in the driving seat again like myself you know I'm doing a lot of work like I'm doing with you now and really happy to do it so um, it's and we've you know 30 years of business well it's not quite 30 years but it counts for something you know, it counts for something, especially in this space. Um, but I guess for me, my big message is like, look for the opportunity. Don't get don't get paralyzed by the fear because the opportunities are so there. Um, and you'll see, um, I guess, so many different businesses that are springing up at the moment that are meeting needs and a lot of them in the charitable space, which is kind of heartening to see. Um, we certainly are. Um, the first part of the mass business was you buy, we'll donate because we had so many to go to vulnerable communities. But now we've got to the, we've pivoted it into like, this needs to be a business now because we've got to pay the bills. We've got to be able to pay our people. We've got to be able to pay the rents. I mean, I've got 10 retail stores throughout New Zealand that are, that are closed um, and they're likely to be closed for the next three months. And I've got managers that are sitting at home. Um, but that's another thing. Instead of kind of thinking, well, these managers are sitting at home while I'm paying them, I'm thinking, okay, what is the opportunity in these managers that are sitting at home? What are the tasks? How can I flesh out where their skill base is and what can they bring to the table that will be the wind beneath my wings? Not, not this exhaustive, you know, hey, people sitting at home getting paid um, just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's fantastic. That's that's really good advice there. Um, and I'd just like to now touch as well on the work that your charity does. Uh, just explain that for people. So you've got your charity Raw, Reclaim Another Woman, uh, which has the purpose of creating inclusion, community and opportunity for some of New Zealand's most disadvantaged women. So if you'd like to talk to us about this and also um, just share with us what inspired you to pursue this cause and why you think it's so important for the advantage 
advancement of women, especially in New Zealand? Well, I guess the first thing is, is that this is another really big story because it's six years old. Um, you know, purpose is in your passion. Um, it's really important to do stuff that you love and whether that's business or whether that's working in the philanthropic space. And for me, I set up my own foundation um, in 2013 and I really wanted to be, I guess, more than just a healthy bottom line. Um, I wanted to be able to contribute. All along the way, I'd actually worked alongside all sorts of different charities, um, charities that uh, I hadn't necessarily been a victim of, but I had potentially aligned with them to promote product, to get involved in their fashion, shows to um, connect with them in some sort of way or, or donate money to them. So when I set up my own foundation, I started to think about what it was that I wanted to get involved in. And I knew that I was looking to tackle some of New Zealand's biggest social problems, um, but I certainly didn't know exactly what that was. And I also, um, you know, was not sort of um, looking actively. And it was the head of Te Whakaruruho, which is a big Māori women's refuge in the Waikato. She came out to see me. They were in a very precarious financial situation and she'd heard that I helped a lot of charities, which I had through my huge business journey where I'd aligned with so many different ones. Um, and she, she sort of I guess she was after money that day. She's now become a really strong friend of mine, um, but I didn't give her money. I gave her me. Um, and we got together and we started to look at how we could turn the fortunes of refuge around, which five years later, I've set up a governance board for them, which I chair, and I, they're in a very strong financial position. But I guess it was out of there that I started to see the repeat journeys of so many women in the family violence space, and I started to think about change models. We've got lots of models that work in crisis, but we don't have a lot of models that work in change. So it's all about kind of meeting the need immediately, which we need to do. We need to do its incredibly important work. But I wanted to think about change models. And that's where I started because it was a Māori women's refuge. A lot of the women had been inside, had been in prison. And I saw the disadvantage and I saw the chaos, the disruption, the drugs, the criminal activity. And that's where I looked for a community that I would, um, I could start to think about activating a change model with. And the the New Zealand women's prisons came under my radar. And I guess all of this was very much, you know, shoot from the hip, you know, good intention, not really sure what it will look like or how I'm even going to relate to this audience, but certainly know I have my heart now Māoridom and have um, certainly, you know, made the connection and have the respect um, of Māori women. Uh, so I approached corrections and I guess being a big brand in this country or a relatively big brand, and that's what fashion does for you, whether you're highly profitable or not, we get all the wonderful media exposure. So people tend to know who you are, which is, it makes it very easy when you're knocking on someone's door. So I knocked on the door of the CEO of corrections, Ray Smith, and I convinced him to meet with me. Um, I was wanting him to actually give me access to the prisons because I knew that by coming from the bottom up, I wasn't going to have any luck. So I needed to go from the top down. I guess the biggest dilemma that um, his deputies had that attended the meeting that day was what to wear. Um, the nice thing about that was that I was possibly in jeans and a T-shirt um, and that I'd certainly sort of moved into my raw attire, which don't look anything like my fashionable gear. He agreed to give me the opportunity to access our largest women's prison in Auckland. And I guess the rest is history. I convinced my sister to join me. She had 25 years of mental health working in the community. So suddenly we had the left and the right brain. I was the business arm of RAW and she was very much the holistic clinical side of RAW. So we activate in the prisons. Um, we work with heavily recidivist female offenders that have a high 
um, and we have a high preference for Māori. The reason that we work um, with Māori women is they're statistically um, our highest percentage in there. And I guess I also, my heart was in Māoridom, and I believe that the partnership of Pākehā Māori working together and thinking differently could actually achieve some great outcomes. So we don't we don't overlay mm. our normal over, over the women we work with. We don't kind of um, think, and we don't take a model to them and say, this is what you should do. Um, we walk alongside and we get to understand a normal of trauma, of abuse, of neglect, um, of absolute chaos. And then we think about how we can slowly convince a woman to test the water around change. And I think key for us is that we develop the relationships inside because we work inside Auckland Women's Prison two days a week. And we develop a trust relationship with women that have never, ever trusted. And once they choose to exit with us and come into the Hamilton space, that's where we start to negotiate work, study, find our connection, depending on what they need. But once you're part of all, you're part of all for life. So it becomes an alumni-driven model as you move through it. Um, but certainly there's a very intense part as you start with us in Hamilton. But it's been massively successful. So we've had almost 100% success rate with women that are 100% doomed to fail in this space. And I, I guess key to our success has been understanding another normal. So I understand uh, that um, my normal is not their normal. And so therefore, I don't try and overlay stuff that would work for me onto them. Um, I take the time to work out what it is that would entice them to change. What is their why? You know, what is it that would get them to change? And a lot of cases, it will be their children. It'll be their children. And to, I guess to grow this work, which is, um, you know, a lot of people are surprised, but I've gone back to university. So I'm doing a master's this year. Um, and my thesis is around um, the legalization, legalization of methamphetamine in this country. I truly believe that we would benefit um, if we were to take back the control from the gangs. Um, but that's another huge conversation. But I am back at university endeavoring to add some academia now to what I know from the work in the prison right. space, because I know that that's the only thing that will give me credibility within the government space and enable me to get the change. So my big, hairy, audacious goal for the prison is to turn them into learning centres. So I believe we need to pay catch up with a demographic that will never naturally choose to learn. And we'll do that um, by converting the prison spaces into a learning institute. And so that's the goal that I have. And once uh, we'd started to work on that before we were all locked down, and I guess for the girls, lockdown is something that they're used to all the time. Um, but for us, we're out of the prison at the moment. But under level three, we're hoping that we get the opportunity to access. So we have a, the goal of creating this educational space, which creates, um, which will in, in enable the change that we need. So I kind of, I've now got insight into what it will take to actually um, move the woman forward. And after I finish speaking to you, I've got a Zoom call with about 30 of them. Um, that are out in the community and have part of our immediate alumni. So that's kind of exciting too. That's our first step. Wow. That's amazing. I, I love the work that you do in that area. And one thing I just want to, to touch on that you mentioned in there is the um, the relationship between Māori and Pākehā and ensuring that that is facilitated um, because I understand that you're not Māori yourself, however you have um, gone into this area and really embraced it. So what would your advice be for other um, New Zealanders and embracing Māoridom and using um, that? When you say embracing Māoridom, you're, you're, you're saying that you still believe that there's a distance in the country? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think I do because I'm in the same position as you. I'm Pakiha myself. However, I um, yeah find so much beauty and think that in New Zealand there is a lot of disconnect, unfortunately, between um, embracing the Maori culture and um, how Pakiha often do things and there often can be this model that is tried to impose in these situations. But I think that there is so much power if we actually embrace both and live as a country together. Um, and so I love that that comes through. Yeah, I guess for me, um, you're right. Those prejudices don't exact, don't just attach to Māori. They're there with Chinese. They're there with Indian. They're there with a lot of our sort of um, ethnic minority races that now call New Zealand home. And um, Māori were obviously the first here. Um, and it's very much their country. But I guess what I do is I acknowledge the journey of colonisation um, and of urbanisation as being a massive disruptor as to why Māori are in some, some of the challenging positions that they're in now. And for a white woman to be to be acknowledging that is, is, is rare, is rare. A, a lot of us are more in the space of saying, yeah. well, really, you know, we've paid out so much money, we've given so much, why can't Māori just get out of their own way? Um, and get on with it but I certainly see that it's not as straightforward as that um, and money is not going to be the healer here it really isn't and certainly money within the raw model is not the healer it's the people and it's the connection and it's the trust and it's the relationships that we build and I guess for me my advice would be that it's really important um, to I guess um, get insight into a space that you're maybe a little fearful of. I mean, especially the criminal space that I work in, um, there's a lot of fear. So I spend a lot of time speaking to especially older, older audiences with the raw woman to show them the normality of a raw girl and the journey that's led her to the space that she's now in. Um, so it's about becoming more informed, more aware, more connected, um, you know, without actually forming and creating those prejudice or biased opinions that are essentially a result of the media. Um, the media drives these, you know, what we see on the media is such a small percent of actually what's going on and it's heavily weighted towards Māori and some of the more difficult um, crimes that are committed. But, um, you know, I would really um, implore all of us to actually get a deeper connection and understanding of that journey of Māori um, and why it's so difficult to unpick. Mm. It's not just one we can unpick with, with the dollar, with money. So, but, it, it, you know, Māori certainly um, have some wonderful cultural nuances to bring to the table. Um, and I love being immersed in that space. And I have a huge respect and a huge appreciation. And I've actually found my natural fit, which is kind of nice because I come from a very narcissistic fashion space um, and it's polar opposite to where Māori, uh, you know, fashion is very, um, it's not very inclusive, it's quite exclusive <clears throat> and, you know, um, we're very much about ourselves. Um, whereas Māori is all about whānau, is all about contribution, is all about working together, moving as one race. And there's a, there's so much that is great about Māori. So it's about how we, um, I guess, those that have disconnected and those that have become disenfranchised with Māori um, and that more rural type community that functions so damn well. It's how we activate to become one race. And that will only happen if we move closer, if we get a deeper understanding and if we give people time and we stop trying to overlay our normals onto them.
And that's pretty much what we do um, from the point of view of state intervention. It's all about how we would do it in a colonial way. And I certainly see that in the prisons. You know, if the prisons are 70% Māori women, why are they being run in the same punitive and colonial way as they are, um, you know, as they were in the 1920s? I mean, we've certainly brought over a very British justice system and a British penal system, and we've overlaid that across Māori. And we know it doesn't work. You know, so, I mean, we now are in the space of insanity. We're doing something we know that doesn't work each and every damn day. Um, so, you know, for me, it's how all of us together can get a greater insight and a greater understanding. And the community that I work with, I guess, see themselves at the bottom of the barrel, right at the bottom. So, you know, for me, it's the hardest community to crack. It's the hardest community to get to change. And they have a low appetite to change too. That's something we must respect as well. You know, why would they want to go and work in a minimum wage job? Because it's all that's available to someone that's missed the educational journey. And a minimum wage job when they can drive such massive and immediate income streams off the sale of meth. You know, I'm working with a woman that was able to generate $12 million a year from the sale of meth. You know, while she's been in prison, all that's been on offer to her is a barista course. Now, that's not barrister, that's barista. You know, there's no way when she gets out that she's mm. going to be looking to working in someone's cafe. And so I think we've got to really appreciate the different normal that exists out there. A lot of the women that I work with love crime. They love the immediacy. They love the return. They love the excitement. They love the thrill it gives them. And they love drugs. They really love drugs. They love the way that methamphetamine makes you feel. You know, um, if you're seen as the bottom of society's bucket and you can suddenly take a drug that makes you feel so bulletproof and capable, I mean, hell, I'd take it. I take it. And so I guess it's about understanding these communities that we be two young women listening. Um, and then you could maybe bring in some of your experience that you've had here who have got really big dreams. They're really ambitious, but they feel like they have got a lot of barriers facing. I guess you can never be good at something unless you love it. Um, and so the first thing is to endeavour to look for and skill into those spaces that you love, um, that you actually want to be in, that you're going to enjoy being in, because that is, that'll, that'll be such a big driver for everything you do um, as you move forward and the success that you ultimately um, should succeed with. But, you know, it's just, and whether, I mean, Michael Hill was a really good friend of mine, the jeweller. And I remember years ago when I had the magazine, because along the way I was silly enough to buy a magazine, um, and I went to interview him. And, uh, you know, he said to me as his final, um, I guess his final sort of parting shot was he said, you know what's wrong with most New Zealanders, Anna? And I said, no, Michael, share. And he said, they doubt. And I thought that was such a great summation of so many people. You know, I mean, I've never doubted myself. And I guess you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to back yourself if you're going to get anywhere. And, I, and one of the things we've not talked about is I am and do see failure as such a powerful thing. I don't see it as a stigmatized sort of, hey, it didn't work, um, go and crawl under a rock and don't ever try again. I enjoy the process of failure. It is the one space that's going to grow me. So when I'm tripping and falling and it's not working, um, I know that success is just around the corner because I've got to try a lot harder. I've got to change. I've got to do different things. I've got to test stuff. 
Um, I've got to connect differently. There's a whole lot of stuff that's got to happen if I'm going to turn failure into success. So I don't get traumatized or stigmatized by failure. It's such a big part of a successful business journey. And I'm not, this is, this won't be new to your listeners. You know, they will have heard so many people that have, that speak in the way that I do around their success and how failure has been such a vital part of that. And I think if you hold on to that, then what do you got to lose? So if you do back yourself and you are and you have found something that you truly believe that you love, you believe you've identified a gap in the market, you believe the product or service you're going to deliver has a point of difference, and that's really important. Um, don't just go out there and do what everybody else is doing, um, unless you're going to be the cheapest in the market, and that's your point of difference. It's not going to work. Um, so therefore, you need to look for the gaps. You need to look for the differences. Um, you need to look for how you're going to set yourself apart. Then you need to back yourself. You need to try stuff. You need to take risks. And you need to be just you need to be so okay about failing because you will fail um stuff will happen around you but you know in adversity i find strength um in adversity you know i said to someone this morning you know i'm not a religious woman but i totally believe that if i was religious i probably would be sitting here saying that god has sent me all of this to to because you know i've been in such a sort of ambivalent space for the last three years where we've been trading in a break-even way. It's been really hard work to make to, to, to sort of break even. Um, and now suddenly all that infrastructure that I refuse to sell, that building that I you know, said, nah, I can't sell it, I want to stay here in Morrinsville, this is who we are. Um, and all that fabric that I refuse to just give away to, to all the jobbers that knocked on my door to try and buy it. I'm suddenly sitting in this wonderful space. I've got this perfect storm around me and I've been able to activate a business in a much faster time than so many people have been able to because I've got infrastructure and I was positioned in a space and I was prepared to take the risk. I was prepared to do it. You know, I was prepared to cut thousands and thousands of masks without really ever knowing if this was going to be a big thing. And in those early days, the government was saying, don't buy masks. Um, you don't need them. You're all good to go out without them. You don't need them. It's just, you know, it's just those people that are selling masks and driving their products out of fear. Don't do it. Yesterday, the government released a link that said they would recommend that whenever you went out, you should wear a mask and fabric masks are a great option. So while I've been whacked around and I was producing thousands of masks with the government saying, don't do it, don't buy, um, I suddenly get a statement from them yesterday saying these are a great thing. And I guess I backed myself. I believed in myself and I knew that a, a you know 100% cotton reusable mask just made a shitload of sense. It really did. You know, all of those paper masks are one day wear and they're just becoming landfill. So they're creating another problem for your generation. You know, our selfishness and our inability to think off the hoof. Um, you know, sure, we can import the paper masks from China till we're blue in the face, but let's think about something that's a little more permanent. And that's what I did. I backed myself into the masks. No, I didn't just wait for the orders, then make them. Mm. I made the masks first. That's great. And yeah, I, I love that. And I think that all through the story that you've shared today, that whole concept of really just going for it, mm. backing yourself, taking the risk um, and not questioning um, is, is amazing. And, and that's something that I've really enjoyed listening to you speak about and that I'm personally really inspired by and challenged so um thank you so much for sharing this today and for taking the time out of your busy um 
production line of face masks it sounds to to speak with us today and to share that incredible yeah, well, story thanks for reaching so out um you know the generation that you're connecting with is incredibly important and my daughter sits within that generation so i guess you know just as maori would it's about how we take from those that have done the journey um and you know certainly be okay to reach out and ask the questions because it may just save us from traveling the school of hard knocks um, which is never an easy place, but as I pointed out, I, I actually don't find it a bad space either because it's where all your learnings are.